morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Excellent, great, good. Well, we are glad you're here with us this morning at Kent City Baptist Church. Um, my name is Derek. I am the youth pastor here. For those of you that may be visiting us, um, most of you are aware that uh, Pastor Chris and his wife, along with Bill and Linda, Linda Rexford, are over in Israel, uh, partying it up, having a good time. They're by the Sea of Galilee. I'm sure Michelle found a really nice um, Jewish cafe somewhere to get Jewish coffee. So looks like they're having a great time, and uh, just keep them in your prayers as they travel. Um, and I'm not, honestly, I don't know when they're coming back. We'll see. Uh, they may like it so well, they may stay there. Who knows? Um, but in Chris's absence, uh, I am afforded the opportunity to bring forth uh, the word this morning. Uh, next week, Pastor Jared will be speaking as well. And so I count it a privilege to come before you and preach. Um, it is a heart-wrenching, uh, stressful thing to do when we consider handling the Word of God and what the Bible has to say uh, in regards to how God wants us to live. And, and so uh, I'm, I'm excited to do it. Um, and I ask that you bear with me this morning. I've been a little under the weather. If you were at my house last night, you would have thought something was dying. Um, nope, it was just me coughing a lot. Um, but we will do our best this morning to uh, communicate God's word. So, well, this will be our fourth message pertaining to the study of the Bible. If you've been with us, then you know that we've been turning our attention for the month of October to studying the key tenets of what we believe to be true about Scripture. Pastor Chris spent the first two weeks talking about the power that the Scripture has to change us, and that God's word is inspired, which means that God breathed the very words through the medium of human writers to communicate to us the very words he wanted us to know. Last week, Pastor Ken spoke on the Bible's authority to speak into our lives. That as believers in Jesus, the Bible has complete ability and authority to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. And that our responsibility is to trust and submit our hearts to the Bible's authority. Well, this week, we're going to spend our time talking about the inerrancy of the Bible. That is, the truth that the Bible is without error. The study of the Bible is widely held by most evangelical scholars as one of the most important doctrines of our faith. For on this doctrine, all other doctrines are established. If we, when uh, we view the Bible, if we do not arrive at the place in our belief that Scripture is, number one, uniquely inspired by God, has final authority in our lives, and, and is without error, then the rest of what we believe about faith, Jesus, God, and all of Christianity is going to be vastly affected. There are three questions we'll attempt to answer today. First, what do we mean that the Bible is without error? Secondly, why is believing this truth, that the Bible is without error, why is believing this so important to us? And finally, what does this doctrine about the Bible mean for us? But before we go any further, if you bow with me, let's just go before the Lord and ask him to help us understand this subject matter um, as well as we possibly can. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we come before you this morning because we acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge, Father, that um, you sustain us. You give us everything we need to make it through this world. You give us hope. You've given us meaning and purpose in life. 
This morning, God, we come as a body of believers uh, who make this claim that Jesus Christ is it. And that your word, your Bible, is sufficient. God, I ask for a couple things. First of all, Father, as your servant who is trying to give forth your word, I pray that you'd help me to articulate clearly and concisely what it is that your Bible says about this particular topic. Lord, I pray that you would help the hearers this morning, that they would be moved by your spirit to understand the importance of the inerrancy of Scripture, that they would consider evaluating their own lives to see if they really have submitted to the authority of God's word. And Father, finally, I pray that um, if there are things that are spoken this morning that are not completely accurately true of what Scripture represents, I pray those things would fall away. And that only your holy truth would remain in our hearts and our minds this morning. God, this is a serious thing that we consider. The handling of your word. And we live, God, in this generation, this culture, uh, where the Bible doesn't seem to have impact. And it doesn't seem to mean a whole lot to very many people. So here we are, the faithful to you, Lord. Help us to seriously consider and evaluate uh, this topic of biblical inerrancy this morning. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, first of all, what is meant by the term biblical inerrancy? There are three statements, I believe, that are important to consider when defining this idea. Number one, the scripture in its entirety is without error, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. This means that the truth of the Bible is sufficient for you and me. Psalm 19, 7 through 8 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. So according to these passages, the perfect word of God has the ability to refresh our soul, to replenish the very core of our being that is directly tied to the image of God himself. Have you ever tried to fill an aching soul with something other than God's perfect truth? Did it satisfy your soul or were you left wanting more? One of the few times in my life when my heart ached so badly to the point of feeling as if my soul was dying within me was when my cousin Michael passed away unexpectedly at the age of 18 to bacterial meningitis. I remember it as if it happened yesterday. One day he was a healthy 18-year-old enjoying the beaches of Florida while on spring break. And two days later he was lying in a hospital here in Grand Rapids being kept alive on a ventilator. Shortly after being placed on the vent, his body gave out. I remember that feeling like someone, sucked, someone had sucked all the life, uh, all the joy out of my heart and my soul, and I was left with nothing but emptiness and numbness. I suspect some of you this morning have felt like that. You've experienced that kind of tragic loss. As I sat in the front row of the church listening to the preacher talk about Michael's life and how he did not die in vain because Michael knew Jesus as his Lord and Savior, the promise that God brought to my heart at this time was John 14, 2 through 3, where Jesus says, 
In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Yet I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. In that moment, I had hope again, the hope and affirmation that I will see my cousin, Michael, again. The pain of loss was still there, and honestly, to this day, it's still a wound that has left a deep scar. But it is only God's perfect word that has the ability to renew, to refresh, and to restore our soul in moments such as these. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced the holiness, the perfection of God's word at the point of your life when you're the most broken, you're the most lost, you're the most desperate, where God speaks to you through his word and he restores you and replenishes your soul? If you have it, you're missing out on the power and authority of God's word in your life. Well, secondly, God's word has been preserved and its original meaning has been kept intact. We just sang about that in the song, Ancient Words. In other words, we have confidence that the message that God gave the original authors of the Bible is the very same message that you and I have today. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, I tell you until Uh, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, the third statement in regards to biblical inerrancy is a quote taken from Albert Moeller. He's a well-known theologian in evangelical circles. In discussing the topic of biblical inerrancy, Moeller says, in affirming that the Bible as a whole and in its parts contains nothing but God-breathed truth. Evangelicals have simply affirmed what the church universally has affirmed for well over a millennium. That is, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. We believe that God has chosen to speak through his word. Is this the Bible you believe in? The entirety of the Bible. One that has been given without fault, fraud, or deceit one that has been preserved through the ages so that by its truth we stand and we declare the glory of God. Moving on to our next point, why should we believe that the Bible is without error? There's five things I want to talk about in regards to this. Number one, the Bible itself claims to be perfect. Psalm 12, 6 says, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Proverbs 35 reads, Every word of God is pure. In John 17.17, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, he makes this proclamation about God's word. He says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As one writer puts it, these claims of purity and perfection are absolute statements. Note that it doesn't say God's word is mostly pure, Or that scripture is nearly perfect, the Bible argues for complete perfection, leaving no room for partial perfection theories. Well, secondly, why is it so important that we believe this Bible we have is without error? The credibility of the inerrancy of scripture 
is built upon the character of the one who has authored it. Let me repeat that. The credibility of the inerrancy of Scripture is built upon the character of the one who has authored it. In other words, we trust that God has the ability to give us a book that is perfect because it comes from him who is perfect in every sense of the word. To question whether the Bible is perfect is to question the very character of God. So what do you believe about God's character? Well, I believe there are two aspects about God's character that should give us truly full confidence that the Bible he has given to us is without error. Number one, God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, not a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will it not be done? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? One scholar writes the following, we believe that the God who created the universe is capable of writing a book. And furthermore, the, uh, the God who is perfect is capable of writing a perfect book. The issue is not simply, does the Bible have a mistake? But can God make a mistake? If the Bible contains factual errors, then God is not omniscient and is capable of making errors himself. If the Bible contains misinformation, then God is not truthful, but instead he is a liar. If the Bible contains contradictions, then God is the author of confusion. In other words, if biblical inerrancy is not true, then God ceases to be God. That's an incredibly dangerous premise to tread upon. Well, secondly, God is good in his character. Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. As a father of three small kids, I have a relatively good idea about what they need in regards to their survival in this world. So phrases like, don't lick that, or take that out of your mouth before you choke on it, are often things you would hear at my house, because I love my kids, and I want what's best for them. These desires toward them derive from a sense of knowing what is good for them, and following through with providing for them. As parents, we all want the best for our kids, and we endeavor to show them uh, this by how we serve them day after day. However, if we're honest, we fail as parents, often, and as humans in general. <laughs> we're affected by the consequences of sin every day, yet somehow we manage to know what is good for our kids. If this is true about you and I, how much more is God capable of showing his goodness to us by revealing himself through his perfect words in Scripture? Well, number three, why is it so important that we believe in the doctrine of biblical inerrancy? Because if the Bible is without error, then the Bible is able to rightly and with authority examine the heart of man. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
One scholar writes, notice the relationship between the heart and the word. The word examines, and the heart is the one being examined. To discount parts of the word for any reason is to reverse this process. We then become the examiners, and the word must then submit to our superior insight. What happens when we place ourselves over Scripture and we become the judge and jury on whether or not we deem it worthy of speaking into our lives? I think there's two things that come about when we do this. Number one, we no longer view the Bible as having authority in our life. The Bible does not have authority to speak into life about your daily decisions or assist in forming your convictions on such issues as sexuality, finances, relationships, or moral behavior then who or what does? We are left to the wisdom of our own will and heart. Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 warns us about the state of our heart. He says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, secondly, when we place ourselves over the Bible as judge and jury, our ability to discern uh, truth from falsehood is skewed. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But it says, Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I believe if we develop these consistent patterns of criticizing the teachings of God's word, whereby we refuse to believe that they are inerrant, infallible, and God's exact truth, then the voice of the Spirit's conviction on such issues become more and more difficult to recognize and to respond to. Do you allow the Bible to speak into your life on all issues, big and small? Well, number four, if we accept that the Bible is inerrant, then one must accept that the entire Bible is without error. This means we do not have the luxury of picking and choosing which tenets of faith we're going to follow, and which ones we're going to ignore or set aside. The Bible is not uh, a buffet of theological propositions that one can simply weed their way through, tasting and sampling the ones that look appealing, and yet choosing to pass over the ones that seem too constraining or uninviting because of the temperature of the current culture. Choosing to believe that the Bible is inerrant, inerrant means that we fully believe and accept every word that God has chosen to speak about even the most difficult of issues that plague our culture. One writer puts it like this, many people like the verses that say God loves them, but they dislike the verses that say God will judge sinners. Well, if the Bible is wrong about hell, for example, then who's to say it's right about heaven or about anything? The Bible cannot get the details right about creation. Well, then maybe the details about salvation cannot be trusted either. Or if the story of Jonah is a myth, then perhaps so is the story of Jesus. On the contrary, God has said what he has said. And the Bible presents a full picture of who God is. Psalm 119.89 says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal, and it stands firm in the heavens. Are there some teaching in God's, uh, teachings in God's word that are more difficult for you to accept than others? Years ago, I worked at an ice rink in Grand Rapids. I've shared stories about this rink before. There was one guy in particular that I worked uh, many hours with. We worked a lot of shifts together. His name was Dan. Dan would often ask me many uh, different questions about the Bible 
about God, about Jesus, about morality. But I distinctly remember Dan's biggest hang-up with Christianity and the Bible was that he couldn't understand and could not accept that a loving God could or would allow people to go to hell. You see, Dan wanted a God that was only loving and essentially tolerable of man's sinful ways, whereby God would turn a blind eye to their sin. We're living in a generation, in a culture, that I fear there's a growing number of people, even here associated with our church, with, associated with, with uh, evangelical Christians, where this sort of thinking is gaining more and more traction. Well, finally, number five, why is it so important that we believe in the doctrine of biblical inerrancy? Believing that the Bible is without error means that we have a standard for truth whereby all other propositions of truth are weighed and measured. This particularly is important in regards to moral issues that seem to change like the shifting of sands in our culture. So if the Bible is full of errors and thus ceases to be our standard for seeking and knowing truth, where do we go to decipher what is true? Where are we left? Well, Jesus addresses this in Matthew 7, 13, and he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Having worked with students in the youth ministry setting for almost 20 years now, it's hard to believe, someone said to me after the first service, there's no way you're that old. And I said, I am. I know I look beautiful and young, but I am. 20 years now. 20 years of spending time with students. This is one of the most common places I've observed where people look to find truth, the broad road. Essentially, this philosophy is one whereby the truth presents itself based on what seems to be the direction that the largest crowd of people are going. It seems to be obvious. The path is wide. The voices are loudly proclaiming this is the right way. And there are too many people going in this direction to believe that this is not where truth is found. But the reality is, this is the easy way. Finding life and truth along the broad road does not require much from you as a person. There are no strict rules to follow other than, hey, do what you feel is right in your own heart. There's no absolute convictions uh, uh, to give you direction when you're unsure of the next step. And after living for so long on the broad path of truth, one has to wonder, is this really all there is to life, the broad path? As you sit here today, is this your standard of where truth can be found? in the popular thoughts of masses? Or have you, like Peter, found the only real truth in life? One writer says, if the Bible is not reliable, then what do we base our beliefs on? Jesus asked for our trust, and that includes trust in what he says in his word. In John 6, 67 through 69, Jesus had just witnessed the departure of many who claimed to follow him. So he turns to his 12 apostles and he, and he asks, you do not want to leave me too, do you? At this, Peter speaks for the rest when he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You only have the words of eternal life. Well, finally, what does believing that the Bible is inerrant mean for us? There's two things here I want to point out. First, it means that we can have full assurance that God's word can be trusted. Do you trust in all of God's word? 
Do you trust that it is sufficient to meet your every spiritual need? Trusting in the Bible means that you accept all of what it proclaims for life and godliness. Trusting in the Bible means that you accept the teachings that may seem constraining to the popular thinking of the day. Trusting in the Bible means that you are willing to conform your ways, which probably are wrong, to the teaching of God's way according to his holy scripture. Well, secondly, we must take God at his word. Practically speaking, this means we must actually believe what his word teaches and that belief must be transferred into action. For the majority of us, we have without hesitation the courage to profess absolute belief in the common faith confessions, such as the virgin birth, the sinless life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, or even the belief of the Holy Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, and I want to stop here and give a kind of a preface to what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say could possibly offend a large group of you. Let me recount what I'm, what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to get across. When it comes to the absolute things, like believing that Jesus died on the cross, everybody, most likely, 99.9% of the people in this room would say, amen, amen, and amen. And we believe it wholeheartedly. However, there are things in our lives that the Bible does speak on that I fear that we possibly, maybe, during a lifetime, ignore. And I want to just state a couple of those things. My intention is not to judge you. It's not to be uh, a spirit of legalism. It's a spirit to say, does the Bible speak into every part of our life? And if it does, then we have to be willing to lay against Scripture certain behavioral things, certain moral patterns, certain views or philosophies that may not be entirely correct. So I'm warning you right now, I'm possibly going to say something that many of you are going to be offended by. You can lynch me later. So how often do we consider that the Bible teaches on the following issues? Gluttony, smoking, chewing tobacco, living together while not married, having sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend, tithing, being a gossip, slandering others? I ask you to consider, does the Bible have truth that pertains to these such issues? Do you know? Does the Bible speak about these things? Have you ever stopped to see if God cares enough to give us instruction on these kind of issues? My desire is that we allow the holy, perfect word of God to speak in all areas of our life. If we are going to say that we believe this Bible is true, it is so easy to stand on the concrete, absolute things of theology. But there are other things, as I just exampled, that we oftentimes turn a blind eye to, saying the scripture really maybe isn't clear on that. Or the scripture doesn't address that. Or really God isn't concerned whether I obey the speed limit or whether I fudge a little my taxes or not. If we are going to claim as Christians that the Bible is entirely true and that it speaks about matters of life and death, then we have to be honest enough to say, maybe I should really consider searching out the scripture 
on an issue that maybe for years I thought the Bible didn't really address. Maybe the Bible does address it. And maybe we need to be better scholars to pursue, pursue what God has for us. The whole reason why we're doing this study is because we live in a culture right now that, that obviously the world does not hold to this as any sense of measurement or truth. But we live in a culture where people who would say they associate themselves with even this church or even evangelical churches who hold to the typically absolutes are starting to question whether God had it right on issues of homosexuality, abortion, um, traditional marriage, all kinds of different issues. And, and the reason why we're doing this study is to say, we have got to know what Scripture believes. And we have got to draw a line in the sand that says, we believe, regardless of the coming tides of the culture and the popular thinking of maybe even very well-known evangelicals, we're going to hold to Scripture, regardless of what the most popular thought is presented in that particular time period. It's a line that we must hold to, I believe, firmly, if we're going to choose to say we stand and we stand alone with Jesus Christ in his, in his perfect holy word. We have to. So, in conclusion, I believe we can have confidence that the Bible is not only sufficient to teach what God wants us to know in regards to all issues of life and godliness, but it is the exact words God wanted you and I to know. The question is, do you read this book believing that God has something to say to you? Do we believe that regardless of what other philosophies or popular teachings of the day are being propped up as truth, that God's word is the only source whereby we find true life? Well, may God continue to affirm in your hearts and in your minds as you spend time with him in his holy scriptures that indeed this Bible is God's perfect and complete message to you and to I. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we, uh, we come to you in humility. Uh, God, because we, we, are, we are fallible, Lord. We're finite. We fail. We get things wrong. We misunderstand things. And not only that, Lord, we are uh, prone to wander to things that are not righteous. We're prone to justify our behaviors and the way that we see life apart from your holy word. So God, we come right now as a body of believers admitting our need for you. And not only that, but saying, God, help us. Give us an appetite for your word. Give us a solid conviction in our life that your Bible is true, that it speaks truth. God, that it is sufficient to trust in and to meet our needs. God, Kent City Baptist Church right here, we are this small body of believers that have an opportunity to glorify you, have an opportunity to stand strong on what we believe is the truth. And that is, that is not a popular thing to say, that we have the truth in this day and age. And that message that we have the truth in your word is only going to continue, Father, to get more and more and more unpopular as we progress in time. 
So I pray, Father, for two things this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand firm, that we would base convictions based on what your word says, not what traditional church says. God, that we would have, secondly, we would have an appetite to study your word, to know it. God, I pray that for myself. I'm so lazy when it comes to your word. And I, I gather a lot of us would raise our hand in that. God, give us a love for the purity of your scriptures. Help us to recognize and understand that life is found in them and that, man, when we know them, we understand them, it changes the way we live. God, you are so good, and we thank you so much for giving us your word, for revealing yourself to us through this word. And God, thank you that we can trust that it is perfect. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.